Hey there all you cool cats and kittens and welcome back to another episode of Best in Sass, where each week we take you behind the scenes for conversations with some of Silicon Valley's best and brightest operators and investors. Crack a beer, get comfortable, and join us on our quest to find the patterns and playbooks that accelerate the sprint to 10 million of that good stuff, that repeatable stuff, that stuff we call ARR. Okay, so today I'd like to welcome Logan Allen, uh, former management consultant, corporate executive in the asset management world, focused primarily on innovation and financial services. Uh, he made the leap to be an entrepreneur as an early team member at SoFi, and then in 2018 spun out to start FinVC, and has since made more than 14 investments in the B2B and B2B2C space. Logan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Elias. Great to be here. So I am really curious. I, I'd love to start kind of at the beginning because you come from this world of, of asset management and financial services innovation. Um, clearly, that's had a huge impact on, on your journey so far, and I'd imagine on your investment thesis today. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So I started my career uh, at a Duke undergrad, actually coding and, and helping build software as a management consultant, uh, initially at a, a management consultant called Capgemini. And uh, I got thrown into effectively the financial services team because I had had one inter inter internship at Citigroup. And so they looked at my resume and said, you're going to go do financial services. So it wasn't it wasn't a plan. Um, but the minute I got into inside of these banks and asset management firms and even insurers, uh, I recognized there was a massive opportunity for innovation and change, and that really got me excited. And, and thankfully, um, because I wasn't a great coder uh, or engineer, uh, software emerged to solve for a lot of these problems, whether that was trading or core banking systems or portfolio accounting or financial planning. Uh, I basically you know, started my career in 2003. So as the dot-com bubble had burst and you started to move from more of a consumer-centric world uh, to very much a B2B-oriented world. And I think you're seeing the same trend line in fintech, um, as it's called today, and more the traditional private equity world. Uh, and so it, it has been fascinating to go from the B2B enterprise software world, helping banks innovate, just a little like helping an elephant dance, uh, to being an executive and actually having a technology budget at City National Bank and then Invesco to finding, you know, solutions for all of our problems and, and dealing with it in real time, having to go to portfolio managers and private bankers and have them yell at me because the solution didn't work. Like that is pretty topical uh, and leaves a very strong mark as you go out into the world beyond that as an entrepreneur. And so uh, at that point, this was in 2012, started to see an inflection with Lending Club, Prosper, um, and and these other B2C-oriented companies um, with the ability to go out and offer uh, financial services to consumers through technology and mobile. And that's where, you know, SoFi emerged. Uh, and, and happy to talk more about that story. Um, but, you know, from SoFi, Moving into more enterprise-oriented companies, I was an advisor at Adapar. Uh, I was the interim CEO at Zambato. Um, did a number of different projects in the more B2B-oriented world and, and really gravitated towards that space. Uh, and that was back to my roots. And so um, after becoming a, a, a VC, I ended up doing a number of B2B and enterprise software investments. 
um, and then actually went back to SoFi in 2017 and built out our venture arm, which was very geared towards B2B enterprise SaaS, where SoFi could be a customer or distribution partner. Um, And so when I started my firm in 2018, it made sense to continue that thread and theme. And I think what you're seeing now is a uh, re-bundling and very much the incumbent financial services firms, as well as large fintechs, um, adopting new technology in a major way. So the financial services industry spends a trillion dollars per year on technology, and yet only 8% of their data is in the cloud. They are in dead last of any wow. industry for adoption of cloud technologies. So I think there's been a gradual uh, adoption of hybrid cloud and, and those types of structures. Um, but by and large, there's a lot of white space to maneuver. Uh, and no matter how hard they try, you're seeing significant churn and failure in the technology offerings they have. JP Morgan has had five or six different millennial or Gen Z driven credit card solutions um, that they think is the wedge offering to acquire those customers, which is just a very strange approach, right? Can you imagine like you're, you're a Gen Z or you're a millennial and the first relationship you have with JP Morgan and the way they're trying to acquire you is through a credit card offering. <laughs> so they've, they've shut down a lot of those, uh, those offerings and it just hasn't worked. And so I think you're still seeing an opportunity for B2C fintechs to compete with the incumbents, but the incumbents are spending a lot of money and time and effort on adopting uh, technology uh, uh, and we're trying to invest in those businesses that are mission critical uh, and that you know make a lot of sense for the incumbents. So that's really interesting. And before we jump back uh, to talk about some of your early experience as uh, a leader and advisor for some of these fantastic companies, I'd love to deep dive on what you just said a moment ago around like why is it that you think with all of that white space um, and all of that spend, I'd imagine that there are just so many entrepreneurs chop, chomping at the bit to solve and and occupy that trillion dollars in technology spend. Is that something that you're seeing or why do you think that companies are failing in that space and failing to occupy that white space? I, I think it's it, it's really only started to emerge in the last three years. So much like you saw in the financial services world um, from a, a software and technology perspective, you know, selling into the incumbents was very much a, um, a B2B enterprise play. But if you look at kind of the, the dot-com late 90s, the major technology companies were all B2C. And those were more generalist companies, everything from, you know, pet food to travel. When FinTech emerged, it also started B2C. Right. And so you had many years of B2C orientation with players like ourselves at SoFi that really felt we could disintermediate the incumbents. Well, that turns out to be really hard (laughs) and and highly, highly capital intensive. And so, you know, when I went back to SoFi, we recognized that actually it was trending the other way now. Um, And you shouldn't be really investing in B2C businesses, particularly because we really felt that 2020 was going to be a significant challenge from a macro perspective, we did not anticipate COVID. Nobody did, obviously, um, but it was just shaping up to be a tough year uh, from an environmental standpoint. And, and, and that was because we were late in the bull cycle. We were late in the credit cycle. We were starting to see some, some flags in the credit space, covenant light loans, corporate credit issues, over leverage, kind of hearkening back to 08. And then we knew it was going to be a messy election year. So, you know, that was another big reason that we tilted 
very significantly in enterprise SaaS was, was that direction. And then the opportunity set that we saw for uh, enterprise investing. So now I think you're seeing a huge number of companies in a number of different areas, asset management, capital markets, alternative lending. We call that banking and lending as a service opportunities, insurance, uh, insurance as a service. The other theme in insurance that is really interesting is new risks and technologies that traditional insurers just aren't very good at underwriting because they're highly tech enabled. Um, and the next area is blockchain. And, and we think blockchain can be cheaper, faster, better for specific applications. So we invest in what we call enterprise blockchain applications. Um, and then lastly, in enabling technologies. This could be cybersecurity, reg tech, AI machine learning enablement, biometrics. Um, there's a huge number of spaces that corporates, um, whether those are insurers, banks, real estate players, um, private equity firms, the entire gamut of the financial services industry uh, need to focus on adopting or, um, you know, they're going to have B2C oriented companies actively trying to disintermediate them. So I think it's truly at, at this stage and really in the last couple of years become a full scale strategic imperative. And you've seen that in the M&A markets, right? So Morgan Stanley acquiring E-Trade. Um, I'm personally very bearish on that transaction, but it was a bit of a Hail Mary in terms of Morgan Stanley recognizing they needed better technology, both on the mobile and the website, to address millennials um, and retail customers. And um, Goldman uh, acquiring a number of different companies to integrate into Marcus. Um, and so I think you're going to continue to see that. And there's going to be a lot of consolidation continuing in the space. You've seen that in the payments world. Now I think it's involving in uh, in other verticals as well. Sure. So I, I'd love to go back to some of these early growth stories. Um, we could start with SoFi if you'd like, or, or pick some others. Um, whatever you think would be best. But given that you know, best in SaaS, our mission here is to focus in on that first, you know, post product market fit revenue sprint from around a million in ARR to you know ten million in post. Um, I think you've had so many fantastic. Uh, experiences as an operator and leader before even jumping over to the investing side. Uh, I'd love to deep dive on some of those stories about how you bridge that gap then. And then we can come to present day and hear, you know, how are you seeing the companies you're investing in see the most success when they try to make that sprint, that initial sprint? Yeah. So a lot to unpack there. Uh, let me start with what we look for uh, in early stage SaaS companies. And it's interesting because uh, you can find public data on enterprise SaaS comps and metrics, and you can find late stage metrics as well. Um, but there is basically no publicly available data on early stage evaluation of enterprise SaaS companies. So at FinVC, um, my partner is Peter Ackerson. Uh, he was formerly an executive at McKinsey and was a big part of their enterprise SaaS research and efforts and, and engaging with the startup community. And they found uh, this to be quite similar, but they didn't really get granular on what are those key metrics that companies need to focus on, both from a benchmarking standpoint in terms of comparing themselves to the peer set um, but also, secondly, when should they go out and raise capital? Um, what are the milestones? And so for us, we're seed and Series A uh, entry points. Our real sweet spot is the seed plus stage, which we define as post-product and some degree of product market fit, usually right in that 500K to $1 million of ARR. 
We will lead uh, those rounds, price them, take board seats, and take a very active role in supporting the company, which for us takes the form of business development support and connecting them into customers and distribution channel partners, um, as well as capital sourcing um, as they scale, both from from our own funds and co-investment platform, but also our, our broad network globally. Um, so at a series seat stage, you know, we're looking for a number of different metrics. Number one, they obviously need to be showing pretty significant growth. Usually that's 600%, 6X or more. Uh, again, 500K to a million of ARR. Typically their ARR as a percentage of revenue is somewhere in that 60 to 70% range, meaning there's still a healthy amount of, uh, of professional services. And that's a function of them, you know, simply need to iterate and develop on the product. Uh, ACVs um, are typically, you know, around 50,000 um, in, in our experience at, at this stage, maybe a little less, um, but that's kind of where we want to see them. Um, there should be some level of LTV to CAC uh, data um, uh, and CAC on a fully baked basis. Obviously, it's still early days in terms of the cohorts of customers that they've brought on board, but typically we're seeing kind of four to one CAC uh, ratios um, and some level of payback period uh, of 12 to 24 months if they're more SMB or middle market focused and 24 to 36 months if they're more enterprise focused. They should have somewhere between kind of 10 to 15 customers. They're going to have a lot of concentration, obviously, in their top 10 customers, 80% plus. Um, and then we spend a lot of time talking to customers. Um, we look at net promoter scores if they have that data. That net promoter score should be somewhere in the 60 to 80% range at the seed stage, Series A stage. Um, and their customers had better view this application as mission critical, uh, meaning once it gets into the enterprise, it gets through POC and into the enterprise, and I'll touch a little bit on what that process should look like, um, they need to retain and be sub 10% churn. Uh, and so, you know, from that perspective, you know, we feel that there's insulation in the enterprise SaaS space. And a lot of the companies we're investing in, and many of them are advantaged in this environment. Um, billing should obviously be kind of a, a million dollars plus. There, there will probably be a backlog in customers as you get that implementation um, process nailed down. Um, and the sales cycle is probably a six to 12 month process, particularly for those larger enterprise customers at this stage. Uh, and their implementation is probably a three to six month process. So that's kind of how we think about those early stage uh, metrics. We spend a lot of time in subsequent rounds, Series A, Series B, looking at net retention and expansion rate. So alongside of churn, our customers uh, buying more seats or utilizing the product more if it's more of a transaction-based ARR and understanding how that share of wallet is deepening. Um, so those are all the things that we think about and the key metrics we look at. And we literally have a scoring metrics that we use in evaluating companies across every single aspect of what I just described. And we have a weighting in terms of what we think is most important at the early stages in order for these companies to, to really continue to scale. Um, and then on your second question relative to scaling, um, you know, we've invested in early stage companies out of our flagship fund one, uh, including uh, companies like Era and Natomi. Um, and I'll touch on what those two companies do, but they've been highly advantaged and grown significantly in this environment. And then we've invested in several companies outside of the portfolio on our co-investment platform, which takes the form of more growth and late stage businesses. Those include companies like Onfido and TradeShift. Um, and you know, they all have very similar characteristics, um, which is 
very much enterprise SaaS based, mission critical, global application, very easy to be portable and cross border uh, on Fido and TradeShift are primarily in Europe, uh, Natomi and Era are here in the US, but they're, they're uh, all four of them global. Um, and we think that's highly important. So these are non-regulated businesses, but obviously selling into regulated customers, which, which creates that global portability, um, which is more than can be said for consumer fintechs. There is, if you think about it, not a single global consumer fintech company in the world. Not a one, not a single one. And so uh, it is extraordinarily difficult as we found at SoFi as we looked at this um, to evaluate uh, uh, different regulatory frameworks and moving companies on the consumer side cross-border. It's basically like Groundhog Day. You're starting over uh, and you need to build a brand and regulatory framework and so forth from scratch. Um, so let me just touch on Elias, if it makes sense, I can give you a couple of examples amongst those four companies I mentioned. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. So, um, you know, what are the key areas we spend time on on the go-to-market side for our companies is pricing. And we think about pricing as a, an initial price when you go to market initially in your early stage seed and series A. And then it's very much an iterative process on trying to reach that um, value-based pricing level that the market's going to accept um, without a lot of friction. And so uh, what I mean by that is the pricing needs to be extremely simple and easy for the end customer, whether that's a CFO who's buying it and it's ultimately going through procurement or if it's a CTO. And so that's something we spend a lot of time on is what is the base pricing and how do we make sure that we can modularize this pricing and scale it um, so that you know you can continue to iterate and get the best value and get to gross margins that are in ultimately the 70 to 80% range, right? That's where you want to be as an enterprise SaaS business. Early days, those numbers are probably 40 to 60%, particularly with your professional services mix. Um, but over time, figuring out how to scale, and that's that's a lot of that is driven by pricing, and pricing drives a lot of that sales process. The second piece on the sales process is very much being vertically focused on one single use case and one single vertical. So in our world, that is, you know, one use case in uh, financial services. So for example, uh, with uh, Natomi, um, they are a AI machine learning driven platform that automates customer service. And as I mentioned, they've been highly advantaged in this, uh, in this market um, and have had a huge surge in adoption from existing customers and a recognition from new customers that this is a necessity part of their tech stack. Um, and what they do, uh, and this is very much public information, um, they help you uh, take all of your inbound customer service inquiries, um, whether that is uh, email, um, which is still, believe it or not, 70% of inbound customer service and interaction. Um, so that could be through CRM, it could be through uh, Zendesk or, or a similar application. Um, and then secondly, through text message, third, through customized chatbots, and then fourth, through social. So if somebody complains about your company on Twitter, they can respond in an automated and human-like way using natural language processing and new capabilities. And so they're actually effectively charging on a per ticket basis. And as you can imagine, in this environment, people aren't going into call centers. Um, and so companies have come to rely on them, whether that's a insurer uh, or a bank. 
or an airline. Um, and they've got all three of those customer segments amongst others that are utilizing the platform to create that automation and make sure that they're servicing their customers in, in a high touch way, but in obviously a low cost and efficient way. Um, so with Natomi, uh, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, process and discussion early days on pricing and go to market. And I think what they recognize and what this plays out with from a thematic recommendation is to be very focused on a specific use case and then go out and replicate that across their peers. Um, I call this kind of the open table or network effect, right? If one of the financial services firms or banks is utilizing you and they are a case study that you can reference, you go to all the other banks and you say, hey, look, you know, this is what we've done for your, your competitor. Uh, we want to come in and do it for you and level the playing field. Because if you don't, you're going to churn customers and you're going to have a worse customer experience. Um, so that's that's a key piece is just being very focused on one vertical, one use case and not spreading yourself too thin, both from an industry orientation perspective and a geographical standpoint. Um, and then the third is obviously implementation, right? Uh, and, you know, if there is a significant amount of professional services work in creating business requirements, tech integration specs, et cetera, et cetera, like that's a real problem and there's a lot of friction there. And it's going to be a six month on average implementation process, which doesn't help for a lot of reasons. One, you can't recognize revenue until it's live. Uh, and then two, it just creates friction and backlog in your process and, and uh, strain on resources. So API, SDK driven, very simple sandbox technologies that you can provide to these enterprise customers is critical um, in order the, to be able to enable that integration and make it seamless and make it remote and self-serve in as many ways as possible. And that's now more important than ever. I would say, you know, ingrained in that, uh, in addition, and this is something we're seeing more of, is in the enterprise uh, SaaS or API economy world, uh, people are saying, well, here's an API. And particularly we're seeing this with insurers and banks. Uh, they're like, well, that's, that's great. Uh, this is awesome data. However, we don't have any ability to really build screens from a mobile perspective or an iframe standpoint on web to be able to accommodate this data. And so the, the company now is on the hook for building those on a white label basis in order to enable and remove friction and deployment. And so we think that's actually going to be an increasing trend, particularly for these banking and lending as a service companies. Um, so hopefully that helps. Those are kind of the, some high level thoughts and, and some examples. Um, you know, I would say that the a similar trend line has occurred for on Fido and, and TradeShip uh, and, and for Era, just again, being very use case specific and focused in order to get from a million to 10 million, you need to nail all of those key areas. Um, and, you know, without kind of removing friction in the sales process, uh, having a streamlined implementation approach. Um, and having a very differentiated technology in the market. Um, and just touching on marketing a little bit, each of our companies we encourage and they have developed one pagers for every specific industry segment so that they're going, when they're going to a bank or they're going to insure, that's a very different pitch. Uh, and they have to be smart on what the integration uh, framework looks like, what the key technologies are at that company and why it's a different sale. Um, and so we very much encourage our companies to develop these very specific marketing materials, obviously positioning themselves on a use case specific basis and going in and selling an insurance company on claims adjudication or whatever that key workflow might be, 
um, but speaking their language and and having that industry expertise. And as you scale, right, Salesforce, for example, has specific sales teams tied to specific industries, but early stage companies don't have that luxury. Um, so you've got to very much have quarterback um, leads at the sales and the AE level that you know uh, can be adaptable and work across multiple industries and then gradually start to specialize. So I'll pause there. Uh, happy to answer any other questions. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's really helpful. I'm curious, do you find success taking it a step further, not just use case specific, but even down to the personas that they're selling into to navigate such a complex, lengthy sales cycle as far as the materials that they're preparing and, and, and how they position that? Yeah, I think that um, there's definitely persona uh, orientation for the product team. On a sales basis, um, certainly contextualizing who the user is and how they're going to utilize the system and, and providing as much color on that through the demo as possible, I think is, is very critical. Absolutely. Um, and I think um, developing personas and knowing your user um, is, is obviously a, a very uh, critical initial step. And that user profile may evolve. Uh, and there might be other users in the organization um, that are applicable. So for example, with ERA, they have a vast variety of users. Uh, this is a quant as a service solution, um, providing market data aggregation and quantitative analytics, AI machine learning uh, for uh, equities uh, and equity research. So what's interesting is that the obvious users are uh, portfolio managers and analysts uh, at investment banks and asset managers. That was certainly the first focus segment they went after. But then they recognize that private bankers and wealth managers need that data and want to be smart on the markets and have an easy uh, workflow in place to utilize uh, that software. And Bloomberg is overwhelming and very difficult to navigate and has no AI machine learning. Uh, and then the third set of users, which has just emerged, is um, corporate CFOs and IR functions who are utilizing ERA to help get smart on uh, earnings calls uh, as well as benchmarking their customers. Uh, and peers. And so what ERA provides is real-time tra transcription of earnings calls and investment conferences uh, that's tagged to the individual equity. So you don't need to sit on an earnings call anymore. Uh, that's transcribed in real time and summarized and tagged in the right way so that you can be very clear on what that corporate entity was reporting on. If you're an equity analyst or if you're you know, a competitor, you can get a sense for what the CFO of your competitive organization talked about. And that's very critical in order to tailor your own comments. Um, and so, you know, that that's another area is on the persona side, you're going to build for an initial persona, but be prepared um, to be upselling and cross-selling into other users uh, and finding different aspects to your, your um, application, which might be simply different dashboards or, flexibility in how that technology is adopted. Sure. No, that makes sense. It's a, it's a complex sales cycle, complex marketing mapping that has to happen as well. So as, as we wind down this interview, which has been really helpful and, and super insightful, I'm sure, especially for those founders and operators out there listening um, with a kind of B2B fintech focus, I'm curious to find out you know, we all have those people in our lives who are influential professionally, whether they're mentors or just folks out there in the industry, other operators or investors who we think are doing really great work and admire um, how they go about the work that they do. I'm curious who some of those folks are for you. 
and in, in terms of people that uh, are, are mentors or I think a, a great deal of, is that the question? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because, you know, in the enterprise SaaS world, uh, it's, it's a space that's pretty diffuse, right? And you've got the legacy players, uh, the oracles and SAPs of the world. Um, and I, I wouldn't consider Larry Ellison uh, a, a mentor or somebody that, you know, I'm looking for uh, thought leadership or direction from, um, but obviously a hugely successful and, 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 and longstanding entrepreneur. Uh, it, it's one of those industries where you really have to spend a ton of time on your own getting smart on the space, whether you're an entrepreneur or a VC. And so, uh, you know, for us, that was a lot of hands-on uh, data and an uh, analysis of our own portfolio and really looking at the metrics that mattered. Um, I would say that, you know, Salesforce and Mark Benioff and, you know, the machine that they've created has taught us all a lot about what it means to go to market in the right way, um, what distribution and channel partnerships could look like, uh, and what best practices are around those, um, particularly as it relates to data and this notion of push versus pull. Um, so needing to push and, and fill out a lot of data versus pull and integrating data and making it very easy on the user. Um, I think that Salesforce has, has certainly taught us a lot. I think the the newest uh, but oldest company in this space is, is Microsoft, right? So you know they Satya has really um, pivoted that business from what was a kind of uh, iOS um, uh, software uh, for the desktop and, and the laptop to very much cloud focused uh, cloud applications and selling in. Um, uh, enterprise software into their largest enterprise customers. And I think, you know, they've, they've taught us a lot. They acquired LinkedIn, which I think is ultimately going to be a really interesting collaboration and channel that's taken some time to come to fruition. But the moves that he has made, um, I think have been tremendous in the culture he has set uh, as well. And I think culture is extremely important, um, particularly as you scale. We stress this continuously with our companies. We've seen bad cultures, we've seen good. Um, but I think he's done one of the best jobs of anyone on setting the right tonality and the right culture. And, um, you know, he, uh, he was interviewed a couple of years back and he mentioned a book, which I read and was one of my, is still one of my favorite books. So I'll leave with this recommendation. Uh, and he recommended mindset, um, by, uh, Carol Dweck and the kind of reader's digest version is that he very much stresses having an open mindset versus a closed mindset. And a closed set mindset means that you really feel like you have all of your capabilities and you have nothing left to learn and there is no evolution. Um, you're kind of stuck, um, which I think we all sometimes naturally, unfortunately default to. And his view is that no, we continue growing, learning and adapting. And he's applied those principles to, um, uh, to Microsoft. And I, and I think that's a, a huge takeaway. Um, but yeah, on the, on the reading and the um, data side, I, I, I'd love recommendations that we're, we're very much always looking for insights and data on the space. I think what you're doing um, in interviewing and hopefully providing content and thought leadership is, is hugely important. Um, you know, we think this is a, a critical space. We view it as a specialist um, in specifically applying enterprise SaaS to fintech. And we think that's a, a great tact. Um, to take because specialists are outperforming generalists in the venture world. And we think that will continue. 
Um, but there are a lot of obviously, um, you know, smart enterprise and more generalist investors out there uh, that need to, to look at things more broadly and, and have multiple industries to contend with. So uh, those are those are my parting thoughts. And uh, uh, hopefully this is helpful. And we're available on our website, finvc.co, uh, and always happy to uh, engage with entrepreneurs and the rest of the ecosystem. Well, Logan, thank you for sharing all of the wisdom and uh, joining us on the show today. My pleasure.